A reading from the Revelation to John. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but they were defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He who was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven proclaiming, Now have come the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our comrades has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. But they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not cling to life even in the face of death. Rejoice then, you heavens and those who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you with great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. The word of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. There's this great scene in uh, just a really classic film called The Emperor's New Groove. Right? I heard some cheers already. Finally, I'm hitting my sweet spot generationally. Where the lovable and inept henchman, Kronk, who's the greatest character in the movie, is having a crisis of conscience after being ordered by his boss, the evil Yzma, to get rid of the emperor so that Yzma can rule in his stead. And as Kronk is trying to decide what to do, and he's pretty dumb, his shoulder angel appears to try to talk some sense into him. But on his heels comes the shoulder demon. And the shoulder demon shows up already talking and he says, don't listen to that guy. He's trying to lead you down the path of righteousness. I'm going to lead you down the path that rocks. <laughs> it's a really funny scene and it goes from there and gets even funnier, but I think it's one that really sums up our culture and I fear even our cultural Christianity's attitude toward angels and demons. They're just kind of made up in kid movies as a good way of getting your conscience sort of out there in the dialogue. We live in a world where our perception of spiritual realities has been almost entirely clouded over. Even within the church, the gravitational pull, I think, that each one of us feels is toward a default assumption that the material world, which our senses perceive, is all that there is. Even if we believe in God, the idea that he is surrounded by myriad angels and all of their orders, the idea that there are spiritual beings engaged in warfare throughout the heavens and the earth is foreign to the point of sounding almost absurd to modern ears. But I would suggest to you that this occluded view of reality could not be more foreign to the church of the first millennium. Irenaeus, a disciple of the Apostle John, in his book 
on apostolic preaching sets out to declare the fundamental truths about Christianity. This is the apostolic message, right? And he begins with an explication of the Trinity and the person of Christ. And do you know what follows immediately on the heels of this? In his, like, here's the most important, greatest hits message about Christianity ever? He talks about the seven heavens and the angels and orders of angels and the powers that dwell therein. I mean, try to find me one theology book written in the last century that does something like that. As Louis so beautifully described last week in his homily, the saints refract the light of God's glory in ways that draw us in, that stoke our desire to see more of God's beauty. And I want to say to you this evening that in much the same way, angelic beings are clothed in God's light, displaying for us the dizzying awesomeness of his power. Angels are messengers. As Jacob sees in his vision, they travel to and fro between heaven and earth, not sky and planet, but between the Holy of Holies, where God dwells in eternity, and then out into the temple that is the world. They move from the place of God's dwelling, which is outside of time and space, and encompasses both, and they move into the dwelling place of man, which is time-bound. Angels are liturgical singers. The choir of angels sang as the word of God fashioned the creation he had brought forth. They sang again when he was bringing forth himself in the womb of Mary. The angels attend the divine liturgy in heaven, offering up the thrice holy hymn in ceaseless praise, tending the coals for the incense that fills God's presence and offering him worship. Angels are warriors. They are an army. One of the names for God in the Old Testament is the Lord Sabaoth, usually translated as Lord God of Hosts, and it is his battle name. It's the name that God puts on when he gets ready to go to war because he is describing the angelic armies that go and fight for him. We can see a glimpse of this in 2 Kings when Elisha, the prophet, is being threatened with capture and likely execution, and the king who's against Elisha has sent his army to surround the city where Elisha was staying in order to capture him and bring him to the king for judgment. And Elisha's servant begins to cry out in fear. But Elisha says to him, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then he prays that his servant's eyes would be opened and the servant sees the hills filled with horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. We see this again in our New Testament lesson for this feast. As Michael the archangel does battle against the ancient serpent, hurling him to the earth. This is a weird passage. And it's made stranger, I think, by the feeling of deja vu. Is this speaking about something that happened in the past? Or something that is yet to come? The answer, I think, is yes to both. Back in the misty darkness of human memory, Lucifer, the light bearer, set himself against the divine, deceiving others of the angels to join him, and Michael and his armies thrust them down to the earth. 
And so we can remember our first parents encountered this ancient serpent in the garden where he led them, too, astray into error and death. Subsequently, Satan goes and stands in the presence of God and makes accusation against God's people until one day, as is described for us in this reading, Michael will again thrust him down. As you see in your order of worship, today is the feast of St. Michael and all angels. The name Michael means who is like God. While we don't have much detail on how Satan fell, what we do know is that all of God's creation was good. All of it. And yet, one of his creatures eventually gave birth to a lie that he was worthy of the same honor and worship that was given to God alone. And as Lucifer allowed this lie to be birthed within him, he gave way to pride. He decided that he would be like God. No doubt he whispered prideful lies to any other angelic creatures that would listen. But one angel stood firm and with a war cry that would shake us to our core, shouted forth a rhetorical question, Who is like God? You? And this is how Michael got his name. And the answer that Michael is looking for in his rhetorical question is, of course, no one. No one is like God. Whatever demigods, demons, angels, principalities, powers exist in the world, they do so as a stuffed mouse in the paws of a great lion. There is no one like God. Who built the foundations of the earth? Who placed it on its axis and scattered the stars in the sky? Who designed the sun to burn with almost incalculable energy to bring life to the earth? The moon to give boundary to the sea? Who marked off the dimensions of the ever-expanding universe like a carpenter marking a two-by-four? Who orders the dawn each morning? Who causes the birds to fly their courses through the air season after season? Who taught the great fish their lanes through the ocean? Who brings forth the giant sequoia from a small seed? Who fashioned the majestic mountain ranges of the earth, covering the Himalayas with snow, each flake unique in its beauty? Who gave strength to the horse and power to the oxen? Who is it that called into being all the creatures of the earth? Who fashioned the cherubim and seraphim as ministers in flames of fire? Who is it that raises up kings on the earth and who brings them low into the dust? Who oversees the seasons and maintains the gravitational pull of the planets? Whose breath is it that can lay waste to the forests? Who is it who sees the end from the beginning and marks out the days of man's life like inches on a ruler? Who is it who makes the darkness his cloak, whose throne is established on storm clouds with peals of thunder and lightning? Who is it who dwells in unapproachable, uncreated light? Who is it who makes eternity his dwelling place? and the earth an ottoman for his feet. 
Who is it who is without beginning and without end? Who is this seated on a throne of fire with a river of fire flowing out from him? Who is this just the hem of his robe filling the entire temple? Who is this who holds the earth in his hand like a marble, who directs the hearts of men and writes straight with crooked lines? Who is it who has stitched all of history together and will unite all things in himself? Who is like God? It's been suggested that one of the reasons, if you can even ascribe rationality to evil, that Lucifer rebelled against the Most High is that as God's plan for salvation, wherein the eternally begotten Son would take on human flesh in the Incarnation, this plan was so disgusting to Lucifer that he was repulsed by it into prideful rebellion. A God who takes on human flesh? Corruptible human flesh? Who is like God? Satan, in his prideful insanity, answers, Me. And Michael, with his sword of fire, retorts, There is no one like God. Now, why is any of this important? Most of us have gone through most of our lives without giving 10 seconds thought to the angelic hosts. So, what difference could it make in our lives? To be honest, there's more than I can fit into the back half of a homily, but let me try to start sketching the beginning of an answer. If you don't already know, the Eastern Church did not go through the Enlightenment in the same way that the Western Church did. And as such, the liturgy of the Eastern Church is, in its essence, the same as it was in the first millennia of the Church's existence. And Orthodox iconography is replete with angelic beings keeping watch around the altar. And the ancient prayers of the Church in daily prayer for each believer, there is a prayer included, it's really a conversation almost, to a guardian angel who keeps watch over our soul and intercedes with God on our behalf. And I realize that for many of us, this may sound very strange. Strange enough that our little flashing heresy light is going off, right? Wait, 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 wait. Isn't Christ the only intercessor that we need? Isn't all of this asking for the prayers of saints and angels at best misdirection and distracting from the one God? Now, specifically with regard to angels, I want to give us one quick caution. Power is always seductive. And there is a temptation to obsess over angels and demons and authority and power. And these obsessions are more obvious in, in some fringy charismatic sex. But the temptation, I think, for each one of us is to short circuit the spiritual life into ecstatic visions and feelings of glory apart from the ascesis and discipline of fasting and prayer. We want all the fancy lights and none of the work. 
As I've said before, we must take seriously that it is only the pure in heart who see God. We must not seek spiritual experiences that stoke our feelings or make us appear special or powerful. In fact, this is exactly sort of the point. Satan, ever since he gave birth to his own lie that he should be like God, has sought the destruction of all of God's world by attempting, us, attempting to deceive us into believing that same lie, that we're special and we deserve all the spiritual power we can get. So with that caution in mind, I also want to say that as Western Christianity has continued to drift further and further from the apostolic witness that has been handed down in the living tradition, we have largely been blinded to the fact that God uses means to achieve his will. Did you notice that it is Michael who thrusts Satan down? If I were to have done a poll about 30 seconds ago and I asked each one of you to describe the defeat of Satan, I bet most of us would have assumed that it would be Jesus in the boxing ring with him, right? Jesus would be the one who would bring him to the mat. But actually, that kind of symmetry is deeply unchristian because there's no yin-yang here. There is no cosmic eternal battle between good and evil. And so I ask you, does the destruction of Satan, that ancient serpent, at the hands of one of God's generals take glory away from God? As if. Worship is due God alone, and how much more so when we perceive his glory and power on display in his creatures. God uses means to achieve his will, and so it is Michael the archangel who casts Satan out of God's presence. Who is it who saves? It is the crucified God alone who saves. How does he do so? Yes, through his work on the cross, through his work in resurrection. But to say that God uses the intercessory prayer of saints and angels to bring about our salvation does nothing to diminish his glory and power to save. If anything, it increases our awareness that there is no one like God. No one. And so we need the prayers and the help of anyone who will offer it up, the prayers of the saints and angels. Does Christ's kingship diminish because he sent his holy messenger, Michael, the archangel, to defeat Leviathan? It is the very uniqueness of Christ's incarnation that brings about our liberation from death and destruction that the angels sing and hymn and glorify. As a hymn from the church during Holy Week says, In a grave they laid thee, O my life and my Christ, and the armies of the angels were sore amazed as they sang the praise of thy submissive love. There is no one like God who makes his ministers, his angelic ministers, as flames of fire. This stuff matters, even if you've never given it a thought before tonight, because Satan has set himself against 
every creature of God, and he seeks to deceive and devour them at every turn. And it is St. Michael, the archangel, who battles against him in the name of Christ on our behalf. That's why it matters. So that we can and should cry out, St. Michael, pray for us. It is he who does battle in prayer in the name of Christ for our salvation. God uses means to accomplish his will, and an extension of this is what we do and what is being done to us here in the liturgy. We are being gathered into the throne room of God, surrounded by the hosts of his angelic army. Like right now. We are being brought into their ceaseless intercession as we sing along with them the thrice holy hymn, a hymn which in biblical language is basically saying there is no one like God. There is no one like God. There is no one like God. Holy, holy, holy. God is establishing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven as we sing the heavenly thrice holy. Do you get that? Have you noticed how we say the Lord's Prayer like right in there in the midst of the Eucharist? It's to get us to understand that he is establishing his kingdom here and now in this place as we join with the angelic armies in their song. The divine liturgy is not perfunctory. Just because we do it every week doesn't mean it should get old. It's not just going through the motions. And it is not a creation of man. It does not begin with us or spring from us. It is the work of God lifting us up in resurrection life, out of time and into eternity, which is his dwelling. And he does so in and through the cherubic hymn in which we participate. Right here and now, we are surrounded by myriad of angels who are gazing at the salvation that Christ has wrought for us, and they are working along with us and along with Christ to bring about his kingdom. And so, as our friends in the East say, let us stand aright. Let us stand with fear. Let us attend, because we are in the presence of a holy God, holy, mighty, holy, immortal. May he have mercy on us. For if you should mark iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you so that you may be revered. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.